So today we're going to turn our attention to the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And some uh, general comments about the fourth foundation of mindfulness. The structure of the language that's used, the structure of the things that get explored, are um, looking at systems of how we get caught and systems of how we get free. And the first three foundations, um, you're looking at body experiences, you're looking at um, what it's like to be more embodied, looking at Vedana, the play of Vedana, the third foundation, looking at aspects of heart and mind. And then with the refrain, you're already kind of um, building insight into how these many parts of the stream of experience work. And so there's already insights that arise in how we get caught just by understanding Vedana. If you're in the territory of Vedana, you'll see a lot of your own reactivity or the absence of reactivity. And so there, again, you're already seeing uh, this process of how we get caught and how we get free. But the fourth foundation is um, specifically to uh, draw our attention into not just a moment in time, but how certain things play out over time, and then learning the skills of how to intervene to cultivate our, uh, our freedom, to learn how to become uncaught by our experience. So that's one part of it. Another is that there's a whole bunch of categories uh, the hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense doors, seven factors of awakening, the uh, four noble truths, and your cup will overfloweth <laughs> with categories. And that's often the case if we try to hold this piece um, intellectually, uh, there's just, for most people, there's an overwhelm in it. So again, let's have the uh, chocolate sampler attitude be exposed to these things. And really, the, the categories that are listed here are very classic. So you're not being taught um, things you'll never hear again. This is not like memorizing something that's not useful. Um, these are actually very core categories of how the Buddha talked about Buddhist psychology, or he just what would call it psychology. <laughs> we call it Buddhist psychology. So there's the language of intervention, there's the language of how we get caught, how we get free. And then looking at the systems that he talks about many times in many circumstances, but he usually doesn't talk about all of them at once. This is one discourse where he's showing the A to Z. He's getting such a fine-tooth comb to comb through our experience, combing out where suffering is, that uh, our suffering patterns have nowhere to hide with this discourse. That's why there are so many categories embedded in this last factor. If you haven't already uncovered your habits of suffering, habits of confusion, here's this last factor, this last uh, foundation of mindfulness to deepen investigation of the stream of experience. Another nice factor is that you probably wouldn't even come to this discourse if you didn't already know the Four Noble Truths. So it would be hard to stumble across this. It's a fairly intermediate or advanced text to even begin working with. 
most people get taught fragments of it until they get into momentum. Then you get taught other fragments of it. But to actually walk all the way through it, um, it takes some uh, previous experience for this not to be purely academic. To know how to even investigate, you have to have some capacity of presence, some capacity of mindfulness developed already. And you wouldn't have done that and not known about the Four Noble Truths. So this discourse ends in an investigation of the Four Noble Truths. What that does is it takes all the investigation that we've done and it pours it right back into making sure that we haven't sort of trailed off in our investigations of something else. But we take all of our mindfulness and we devote it back into the Four Noble Truths, which contain mindfulness which can then put you back into the beginning of this discourse. And so in that way, it's a little bit of a, like a car parking garage. You know, you keep <laughs> going up a level and up a level. Each level looks about the same, but you definitely have gone up a level. If you look out to the side, you're higher. If you look over the side, it's just more cars. So it's an ever-growing cycle upward. So what will be needed today is some self, um, self-care to kind of uh, not glaze over because all these things are meant to be experiential. They're meant to kind of heighten your curiosity of the stream of experience you're already having. So in that way, it could be um, uh, um, scintillating to like, oh, I'm going to go look for that. That's kind of cool. I think I've seen that before, but... Here's another way I can kind of get into the stream of my own experience versus like thinking about the, the structure too much. That would get uh, tiring. But if you let this foundation of mindfulness, as it should be, draw you into curiosity of what's actually happening over time, streaming through your experience, and where your suffering is coming from. Where is all of this mental suffering coming from? Because that's the thing we can do something about. We can't do something about the first arrow First arrows happen in life. You'll get sick. You'll hurt yourself. Uh, people grow old, and that's a hard experience to have personally, people you care for. It's not that all life is bad, but life will be visited by unpleasant experiences. But we don't have to mentally suffer in relationship to all the comings and goings of pleasure and pain. That's something we can do something about. And so that's what this uh, foundation is going to help us tease apart, is where does this suffering come from? Where do these uh, mental torments come from? And it's not from the first arrow. It's our relationship to the first arrow. Does that make sense? Everybody on board? Before the boat leads, leaves the dock? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Does mental suffering, like would clinical depression count as a first arrow or a second arrow? Um, Clinical depression, it's interesting. Um, And I'm not an expert, so I'm, but I'm I'm neither an expert nor completely unaware. So um, clinical depression, something is looping, and it could be. caused by um, a first arrow experience, like a tragedy or something like that. 
So there, there could be a grief that's felt. I know um, I have a student whose father died when she was 20, and it was such a shock to her system that she had, you know, it's seven years later, and she hasn't been able to really go beyond it. And there's something holding her. And so that was a huge first arrow. But then the, the way that we're held over time in it can be a combination of the fact that there could be underlying bio, biochemistry that's not, it's not due to clinging and craving. It's just being in a body with a, a temperament that might go towards depression and then being hit by hard experience or a number of hard experiences. And then it's a multiple factor that would create uh, clinical depression. And there have been times when I first got the chronic fatigue that I was struggling with a lot of depression because it was just the, the size of the loss and the size of the pain was so huge. And I went on uh, SSRIs, this um, psychopharmacology, and made a big difference in my ability to meet the size of the first arrow. And that wasn't wisdom, that wasn't craving or clinging, it was, it was my biochemistry it was so pulled down into the loss that the, my system, so I, th- I think it's partly both. And I don't think we could, I, I don't think everybody should try to solve all of their griefs with just uh, classical mindfulness. But some people can. Some people have done incredible things with mindfulness, but I don't think that means that everybody should. So I don't think this is a... Uh, I'm not a fanatic in saying that Buddhism can solve everything. Um, but there is a second arrow and a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh, and a twelfth, and a hundredth arrow. You can keep um, suffering in relationship to a primary hardship and that's something that, that these teachings can do something about. Um, before the boat leaves the dock, yeah. <laughs> um, a little clarification on yesterday's teachings. Um, I've understood the first two foundations to be kind of independent on their own. But I heard a hint yesterday that the third that the fourth is somewhat dependent on the third, that, um, that it makes sense to be more firmly rooted in the third before moving on to the fourth? Something along those lines. Can you clarify? Yeah, it, because the, the fourth foundation is a lot, a lot about mentality and emotionality and how they, we get caught. Um, knowing them better, because of the third foundation, we'll end up just knowing the color wheel of our heart and our mind. We'll know all these various aspects. We won't be so disoriented with the rising and passing of any particular emotion or any type of mental state of fogginess or focus or clarity. So you get to know all these things when they're there, when they're not there. And then knowing that, it's a really beautiful setup for what comes in the fourth. If you don't know your... Um, your heart and your mind that well, <clears throat> then it, uh, it would be hard to make really uh, deep inroads into what's being suggested in the fourth. The same is true. They end up um, building each other. And so the more you actually know the body, the more you can actually work with Vedana. So if I know the elements, I might not like cold, 
but it's just the element of cold and the Vedna of unpleasant. And so if I actually can be with the body, then I can, I can untangle what the Vedna is disliking versus I can't meditate, it's too cold in the room. What's the direct experience of cold? So you're actually going right to the body and seeing if you can have that direct relationship and then find the Vedana is just unpleasant, not that there's something wrong happening. So in that way, they, they do build on each other. But these two foundations, the third and the fourth, are much more closely linked because they're both working in the realm of the heart and the mind and how it gets caught and how it gets free. So, and they have that close relationship. So a follow-up question. Um, I did not do real well taking in yesterday. <laughs> Quite absorbed. Yeah. So how should I hold today's teachings? Uh, lightly, patiently, restore yourself with the bird calls. If you're feeling like it's just becoming too abstract. Um, there are a couple of uh, really beautiful deep teachings in Buddhism. And if it's not accessible, it it's becomes academic. And then there's only so much we can hold of that before it's just kind of talking about things that are not intuitively uh, connectable. And so at some point, we all kind of give out just trying to hold these abstractions. Nice thing about this is that it's meant not to be abstractions. So this is meant to draw us into curiosities about the stream of our actual experience. But um, some of these lists may be new to you. And so I'll do my best to make them uh, accessible and to kind of talk about how they really are working in the stream of our experience versus maybe how they're framed here um, in a little bit more terse manner. I also try to look into the room if I feel like everybody's sort of eyes are down and they're just practicing patience (laughs) (laughs) and dreaming of lunch (laughs) or the mind is so shut down it doesn't dream anymore it's just all all forlorn. Is this boat on a tight schedule? Is this boat on a tight schedule? (laughs) Uh, Not particularly. Okay. Oh, well then. (laughs) Not that there's no schedule, it's just that. (laughs) Um, You may have addressed it some already, the distinction between moods and emotions. Mm -hmm. And like the way that if there's a mood, it might support emotions that are related to that mood Mm -hmm. arising. Mm mostly, like in working with just the mood, if it's mostly about patience. Because you know how they can be like, like they add an extra lens so it's more difficult to be with what's happening? Right. So more patience, more steadiness, because the if a mood is passing through, it has a big impact over what the stream of experience is like. That's one of the things that... Um, Early on, I had a hard time actually knowing the moods I was in because anything that happened more quickly, I could kind of have more contrast to it. But I might be in a, a kind of a, a sleepy mood for a while, and I just kind of for, I'd be so in it, I'd forget I was in it, and it'd be a lot of work to kind of keep reminding myself this is being heavily influenced by sleepiness, or by irritation, or by doubt. So, um, and living by the shores of Puget Sound, 
Um, there are really quick ripples on the surface. There are bigger waves, and then there are tides that come in and go out. And moods to me were more like the, the tides. They would, they would kind of roll in and roll out. Like <clears throat> this morning, I noticed I'm just a little... My body and mind are slower to wake up. So they're sort of like, yeah, this will take some time. It's not... Nothing happened now to make this mood happen. This is sort of a more biochemical process that I'm in. Um, or, I don't know, being irritated with my family or something like that. That can roll in and... and that's what I would, when I call or the, uh, the English word mood um, versus emotions that can move quicker. The mood is a, a larger wave. But I'm not sure if that's like an Oxford Dictionary um, description, but moods last a little bit longer and emotions can have more variance, more quick variance in them. So um, then there was something about Emotions versus feelings, and somebody's trying to say feelings are mental and emotions are more embodied, but I don't know if that's like a commonly accepted definition of them. But they do have um, a big sway over the type of thoughts that come and how you're navigating the stream that you're in. Um, so knowing them <clears throat> and being patient within them because they have, they can take some time to even know them, and um, they have a large impact over. That, that's sort of what when I was talking about being on the prairie versus the canyon versus a waterfall. Some of that is, you know, what's the the larger context that you're going through, and sometimes that is the the mood you're in. So in some ways, although they might feel like they're isn't as much energy available to work with it, it requires more awareness that, that, uh, that those conditions are present. Yeah, and, and acceptance to kind of not fight it, recognize it, and then see if you can open up intimacy with it. Remember um, being asked to use mindfulness of the hindrances. Like, but I'm so hindered, I can't be mindful. I'm like, ah, that's one taste of a hindrance is it's hard to be with. I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't work because I can't be with it because I'm hindered. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but that's still the stream of your experience. And so you can actually start to taste how hard it is to taste what's happening. And over time, I was having sleepiness on this retreat and I would look at the floor, keep my eyes open, so I'd be awake. And I would actually watch my eyes begin to float independently. And I'm like, wow, that's really wild. Like, and I'd lock them on again, and then they would start to spin independently. And over time, I became much more aware of the qualities of sleepiness. But I was definitely, it's hard to know because mindfulness is hindered. But it's still a stream of experience that you can build intimacy with. It's just challenging. Yeah. Can I ask a follow-up question? Sure. So uh, some teachers, like I'm thinking of Shinzen Young in particular, uh, talks about breaking down emotions into thoughts and body sensations, deconstructing them. But for me, a lot of the times it feels more natural to feel it as like a, like a energetic 
sensation. And so that's kind of hard to break down because it seems like to have a pattern and to just be with that pattern seems to be more helpful than trying to deconstruct it into the kind of like two separate um, sense doors. I don't know if you could say something about that. Yeah, I, I, um, I have looked at these things and he, he might have a, whole, a system that he's using that would break emotion down into body sensations and thought. Um, and it'd be strange to, to try to actually take emotion into only body sensation and thought if thought is more like conceptualization versus what's happening in the, the mental realm and what's happening in the physical realm. That I could say, like, oh, that, that might be interesting to kind of watch the, the play of what's happening in the, the mental-emotional realm and what's happening in the physical realm. But to call it thought and body sensation, I was like, wow, there's a whole energetic component. And there's a whole internal climate that doesn't present itself as a thought, but it's a very visceral part of the experience. So that, um, that would be curious for me to... Why, if you, I mean, if you're actually quoting him right, why would be thought and body sensation? I, like, I think there's a lot more to it than just thought and body sensation. I think it's like an interesting way of investigating it, but it kind of feels a little bit like a claim. Um, and so my personal practice doesn't feel quite like that. So I yeah. That. Yeah, and that, we always get to do that, ex- experiment with somebody's teaching, and then put aside that which doesn't work for us. Um, and I would agree in my experience, there's a huge energetic quality. And then the, I can t- tell um, body sensations, what we call a lot energy, the energy, energetic layer, and then the emotional layer, then the more mental layer, and then the much more kind of cognitive, chewy layer. I just have seen, I can, again, put my coffee straw in all of these, and they're, they relate to each other, but they are distinct. So. All aboard. <laughs> Grab a life vest, just in case the boat goes down. <laughs> know where life boats are. Okay, so we looked at some of this yesterday just to even get a sense of it. Um, the first group that we look at are the hindrances. So it's a good place to, for many people to start, is can they find their breath at all? Can they find their feet at all? And then can, if you can't, can you know what type of hindrance is present? Why it's even hard to connect? Why it's even hard to be clear what's happening moment by moment? Some of it might be unfamiliarity, but some of it might be that there's a particular hindrance, and there are these five hindrances. In the third foundation, you would just get to know them when they're present, when they're not present, tolerate them, learn to find freedom even if they're arising. Maybe not the incredible heights of freedom that they're arising, but not being, uh, not suffering tremendously because there's doubt, just knowing, oh, there's doubt. And in that way, suffering reduces because you're not being just unconsciously beat up by doubt or being only pulled by uh, sensual fantasy or only pulled by your aversion. So just knowing it, you might find some degree of freedom. 
But here you get these uh, other trainings that we are invited to do. If sensual desire is present in them, they know there is sensual desire in me. If sensual desire is not present in them, they know there is no sensual desire in me. That's very much like the third foundation of mindfulness. And this is the extra. They know how unarisen sensual desire can arise. So how can unarisen sensual desire arise from your experience? If you're streaming along and you're not obsessed or craving, you're not pulled, how does it arise? What's been your experience? A thought coming. So a thought will come and that will bring up the sensual desire, sensual craving. Other folks. So what's that? Someone beautiful walks by. So contact at the eye. So right here in the language it says, they know how unarisen sensual desire can arise. So if you're, if you know when it's there and when it's not there, you might also have noticed when it goes from not there to there. So what brings it up? What is the, what's, what's that process of how it arises? When someone tells you what to do. That brings up sensual desire? Doesn't bring up desire. Aversion. Yeah, no. You're you're jumping ahead, but that's how unarisen aversion arises when you get uh, an order or something, when someone tells you what to do. Uh, Like a fantasy or memory? A fantasy or memory. Over here. Yeah, so through one of the sense doors, contact is part of, uh, like new contact is part of what brings on sensual desire. I think like certain like mental states, like just feeling kind of bland and then wanting something to... So a previous condition of blandness makes you more susceptible to fantasy or the yearning. So a little bit of dissatisfaction could be ripe ground for sensual desire. I think an unnoticed aversion can, no? An unnoticed aversion can bring up, bring up, bring up sensual desire, yeah. So, pre- there, so what you begin to explore here is that you're not a, they, they sometimes feel like they happen out of the blue, but if you're streaming along, you can actually watch them come up. You're with the breath. You're with one breath. It's satisfying. Second breath. Satisfying, but meh. Third breath. Meh. I've had breaths before. Fourth <laughs> breath. <laughs> Fourth breath. Like, yeah. And then any type of little pleasant thought just happens to be passing by. Like, I think I'll follow that. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, back to the breath. But it can be, you can be with neutral objects and be with them, and it's harder for sensual desire to arise. Or you can be with neutral objects and 
get into a little bit of floaty space. And then because you're not making such a strong connection to really anything in the present, you're more likely to jump on or be pulled into the fantasy of sensual desire. Around food. Yes. Yeah. We never eat anything that's not pleasant, typically. Like we have, right. You see it. <laughs> I just saw like 300 kids' faces right. and it's like, with a pea right in front of them on a spoon. <laughs> but as adults, we have a lot more choice over our food. And then because it's pleasant, that's where our fantasies might go or towards uh, sexual desire or towards any type of desire. Yeah, I want to... Um, I think, too, another thing that can make it arise is just what's happening in your body. So physically, so if I'm experiencing hunger, and then I start to fantasize about food, and then wonder if we're going to have the same amazing lunch from yesterday, like I can, yeah. you know. Um, so what's happening in this like, physical condition? Great. So the feeling hunger would be a setup for the fantasy and for the sensual desire to arise. Anyone else has a... Right. Creamy, sweet ice cream, but I can't understand how. So where where did that come from? It felt like, and it was out of nowhere. There's no ice cream bushes around. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't planted the ice cream bushes yet. (laughs) Probably for good reason. They're just staring like, oh my god, the ice cream bush, all that ice cream melting in the sun. I want it. So sure, and so there there will be many times you will you'll be mindful there's a slight pause in recording like what's actually happening and then find yourself already with a fantasy going. Or you might have been so mindful that the flick was really fast and you're just like that was way too fast to notice. Many of them you actually can it's it's all it's all in the realm. Like if you work within five breaths. Somewhere between zero and ten breaths, most people will feel, you know, uh, the first breath there's commitment because you've just been wandering, and how long does that commitment last? And then the the commitment begins to become a little more weary. It's just the breath, or you get hypnotized by the breath and you get a little sleepy. But somewhere between the first breath and a full-blown wandering mind, there's a process, and what we're studying here is what, what were the conditions that had you be lost in uh, fantasies of ice cream? The heat is part of it, but there's a moment between being present and being really uh, looping and tangled up in a fantasy. And that's what we want to explore here. If it's not obvious to you, I'm not asking this like you've already mastered this, but we've already actually been in the territory where you can begin to have some intuitions. You can gain intuitions where what was the process that led to your anger? What was the process? Well, so-and-so said something, that's the process. Like, yeah, but if you were, if you were in a really good mood and you heard the same thing, would you have gotten as angry? Oh, okay, so I was feeling a little down and then someone said something. Okay, now I can see some of what makes 
is more likely for me to get angry. So you're exploring the conditions out of which these things happen. And that's what's being pointed at here. The next part is um, one knows how a risen essential desire can be removed. So if you don't like the ongoing fantasy, if it's tedious at some point, and you want to remove it, how do you remove it? How have you in the past removed sensual desire for your mind just trailing through sensual desire? Focus on something else. Focus on something else. Very uh, central strategy. Focus on something else. Skip it. Skip it. Acknowledge that it's there. Acknowledge that it's there, and it might lose some of its steam. And sometimes the bubble pops just by, oh, this is fantasy. It's like, oh, it's not as compelling once I see what it is. I think some of it depends on the cause. Why? Because sometimes that fantasy, whatever, is so binding because it's an avoidance aversion of what is happening. So sometimes it's easier to deal with it than others. Yeah, and so you over time you might begin to ask the question, I'm so I'm so caught in this fantasy. Maybe part of the reason I'm caught in it is that there's something else in the present I don't want to be facing. Mm-hmm. And so if you can face what's underneath it, then the fantasy loses its um its pull mm-hmm. because you can meet the underlying experience. Yeah. And like I feel lonely, so I'm really caught up in fantasies of partnership. And I don't know how to meet that, so I'm hoping the fantasy kind of gets me away from or maybe solves that I don't know how to have a, a deep self-relationship. So I'm, I'm really compelled by the longing of companionship. So, yeah. Um, move closer to it? Move closer to it. So begin to actually investigate it. Yeah, great. And so some of them are diverting the attention, seeking an underlying cause, getting to know the actual uh, fantasy. And these are all experiences that you all actually have had. So here we are in the fourth foundation, and it's not so mysterious, right? It's like, oh yeah, okay, actually I've been here before. I don't know what all that preparation for getting lost was. This is actually, this is doable, right? You've all been in the territory. Gotcha. Now, how arisen sensual desire can be removed is the second part, and how future arising of the removed sensual desire can be prevented. The language is kind of clumsy, but once you remove it, how can you practice in a way where you won't have to then work so hard at removing it? How can you prevent these fantasies from arising? Investigating the larger pattern, becoming more familiar yeah, with. So, when does this arise, and what are the circumstances? And um, so that over time, if I work with the same one, I can go to, oh, I see, I see it coming. Right. <laughs> if this is the circumstance where I start to desire popcorn. Great. So you're building familiarity, wisdom. Um, you you're not as lost when it comes because again, you're more familiar. 
and then you've already you've already proved to yourself it's not where you want to spend a predominance of your time. So uh, I seem to enjoy a lot of lottery fantasies when I'm driving and my mind's kind of not so engaged and it's taking a break. And next thing I know, what would I do with a you know one billion dollars? Okay, well. It's like, yeah, but you don't have a billion dollars. It's kind of, it's kind of fun. <clears throat> but what would you do with this one precious life? What would you do here? What would you do with the life you have versus some other life? <clears throat> Having done it a number of times, now I can win the lottery and let it go very quickly. And then if my mind's really locked on, I let it go 10,000 times and it still wants to go there. Why is it going there? It's like, I, I want to have more impact on the world. And that's a kind of an ungrounded fantasy of how to do it. How can I actually live into the dream I'm having, but not have it be such a, um, a weak bridge over into that type of activity, like being struck by lightning, by winning Powerball. It's like, well, maybe there's another way to get at that fantasy other than winning the lottery. I was wondering if it would be possible to, to apply to all this sequence of uh, statements of questions. Very simply, the, the seven factors. Of awakening. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, every, each one of these uh, statements implies... Uh, uh, investigation, mm-hmm. and of course it implies a certain effort, uh, implies uh, some kind of uh, joy in doing it, yeah. and equanimity, uh, etc. And of course uh, <laughs> mindfulness. Yeah. So, um, yes, I understand that everybody could... Uh, speculate a little bit uh, including something which is a specific personal or even linked to this specific moment. Mm-hmm. But in the end, uh, I suppose that in the, in the economy of the fort, uh, these issues uh, are uh, Closely woven with, yeah. the, with the seven factors. Yeah, and so well, the seven factors of awakening is one of the lists, and it's um, a little further down, but it's a positive framing of how to develop the mind, not just how to let go of certain patterns, but cultivating qualities of heart and mind. And as they're cultivated and they work well together, they tend to be very liberating. So a lot of us know about the five hindrances. And fewer people know about the seven factors of awakening. But just like the five hindrances are challenges to the mind, the seven factors are um, beautiful qualities. And we'll see when we get there, that particular list is mirrored in the hindrance language. Not, Not how do you prevent it, how do you encourage it? So we'll get into that when we get down there. But that's one way. And if you like that list, if that list works for you, then that could be a part of how you're um, awakening yourself. Not that everybody should go there, but it is one way to, um, to cultivate your own freedom.
seems like it, it seems like to me in terms of preventing the unarisen back hindrance from like that there's just a lot of nuance and and that the mindfulness and contentment that can help prevent a hindrance from arising like can't really be faked. I'm just sort of thinking about um, let's say let's say making a gratitude list or something right? if you're dealing with feelings of doubt or aversion or something like that. I feel like for me, sometimes a gratitude list could actually be like getting more into the aversion because I'm just trying to avoid what's happening by like mm -hmm. making a list of all the good things that I have and like maybe posting it on Facebook and then other people can like affirm yeah. that yeah. I have all these great things and that I'm doing a gratitude practice and it's just like it's actually really in the self-help world there are many yeah. like tricks and tips that don't actually get at the part of contentment mm -hmm. that you can't fake. Yeah, great. And so we all have um, different uh, tendencies, and so you're working with your tendencies, and you're building a tool belt of how to work with different things, and different tools work at different times. And there are times that a gratitude list does actually shift a sense of like, ah, oh, my life's not so great. It's like, well, actually, let's just count the things that are pretty amazing. And the next thing you know, well, actually that did remove my, but then it's like, well, it came back again. Okay. Well, that's one tool, but there's a deeper thing. And the deeper thing is if you cut away all uh, ignorance and craving, a lot of this goes away. In fact, all of it goes away. <laughs> so you could say, how do you prevent it? Get, get enlightened. Yeah. That get enlightened actually does a pretty good job of solving all these problems. Because <clears throat> that's what, until you actually get down to the core generators, like if I, um, if I have a, a red spot on my, on my hand, and there's a, I can see a splinter right in the center of it, I can put topical things to try to like help the red spot. But boy, if I can get that splinter out, then when I go to heal all the inflammation, I just, I'm not fighting against, there's a primary cause. And in Buddhism, the primary cause is not seeing things clearly. And then the types of patterns of craving and seeking and lostness that happens because we don't see things clearly. So avijja and tanha, avijja, the ignorance, tanha, the craving, are the, the big um, thing that keeps the, the wheel of samsara rolling, not seeing things clearly. And then the craving urges that arise. So if you can get at those two, then you really have prevented the arising of sensual desire in the future. But until we get there, you might want other tools that would be helpful. Avijja is, the English translation is often um, ignorance or uh, misunderstanding. J-J-A. as we're investigating and we're knowing 
really deeply our own patterns and our own sense of where we're avoiding and when we're not, when we're clinging and when we're not, that that reveals its own sense of what would be relevant or what would be skillful to apply yeah. in future experiences. Exactly. And that's why the more you know the third foundation of mindfulness, when you, if you don't just swat away these things, but you really know what central desire is about or what aversion is about, then it's not forever just stepping on them or squashing them or pressing them, but you can get down and see um, what's, what's actually going on there, and then your interven- intervention can be deeper. So I've done a lot of um, uh, creek restoration up and down the West Coast over the last 25 years, and blackberries um, are foreign species that are taking over a lot of creeks and changing the ecology. So cutting back the blackberry, you can do it leaf by leaf, and it takes forever. Or if you can push it aside and get in a little deeper and cut, like a whole clump comes off. And so if you can go into anger deeper and find the root of it, and you can make a cut there, then it's not solving one one irritation after another. It's like, what's down below all this irritating it's like, you irritate me, you irritate me, that irritate me. It's like, I can deal with all these, but like, let's go down a little deeper. Where is it all coming from? So the third foundation, knowing it before solving it, allows the intervention to be um, deeper. And you really see how it's playing out. Otherwise, my intervention would be like, so-and-so just has to shut up. That's why I'm angry. Like, well, I don't know if you know your anger that well. It's like, nah, I'm pretty clear. So-and-so needs to shut up. That would make me happy. See, they just shut up, and I'm happy. That works for me. Like, you might want to spend a little more time. It's like, nah, I got, I'm good. I just got to get the people I want to shut up to shut up. Like, well, that, you could do that forever, because people don't want to shut up. <laughs> so <clears throat> then when you know it, your intervention is like, okay, it's not about getting other people to shut up. It's, there's, a, there's something being triggered. What's down below that? Which is why these two really are needed. And then you, I tend not to graduate from one. Sometimes knowing something down to its core, seeing it clearly actually is the deepest relief because just acknowledging the loneliness, just acknowledging the anger sometimes begins to release the core. But up until that point, you're working on the surface of trying to deal with the aversion or the anger. This also puts the ball in your court to learn from your mind and then to see how can future um, upsets and cravings and doubts be prevented. You learn as you go, and then your... um, working with your mind and habits. And as you get more familiar with them, you get more skillful working with them. With uh, Saida Upandita, it was very easy because no matter what he said, it was always some type of try harder, be more mindful. And so I would go to him and I would try very clever ways to see if there was another way, if there was another tool, because I knew there were other tools out there, but I couldn't get him to validate any of them. And no matter what I said, try harder, be more mindful. 
And it actually works. <clears throat> Not that it should be the only thing you do. But if you want to have two tools in your entire tool belt, try harder, be more mindful, can get you pretty far. But I, it wasn't well-rounded. So I don't, I don't totally back it. But I was surprised at how much trying harder, being more mindful did really work. Um, if you frame it in a certain light, that might be striving or that might be a oppositional. Okay. But um, putting in more effort, like uh, discipline? what's that? Is it like discipline? Yeah, I mean that's right, right effort, discipline. Um, he was pretty clear, and he he would say it in all these different ways. I would kind of. Then you didn't have to go to him that often for questions. <laughs> After a while, like, eh, I, th- I think I know the answer to this one, but le- let me try it anyhow. You're like, oh, oh, yeah, I know the answer to that one. Try harder. Be more mindful. <clears throat> and that was, then that prevented a lot of arising of future um, hindrances, but definitely not all of them. So. And so this, is, this scheme is repeated through all the hindrances, um, can you know how aversion arose, how it can be removed, and how to prevent it? Can you know about sloth and torpor, how it arose, how you removed it, how to prevent it? So um, eating a lot of food on retreat will make you sleepy. So can you eat the right amount? Like, okay, that was a one skillful thing. Standing up, that might be one way to remove um, some sleepiness. Um, Patience, sleepiness goes on its own. So there are all these different tactics of how to work with sleepiness, how to work with restlessness, how to work with uh, doubt. Um, You get to know the five hindrances, how they arose, how you moved them, how to prevent them. Sorry, can you just tell us what the five are? Yeah. So it's sensual longing, um, ill will, Sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. What we've, what we've done in the West is we've used a broader category of aversion because it's skillful. It's like, oh, let's, let's take care of all these things. But the ones that are really tenacious are the fractiousness you feel towards other beings other humans or animals. And that type, that's a very specific, deep obsession is um, the anger and ill will you feel towards others. But you can also be irritated by the heat. And so in the West, we've broadened that by using the word aversion. But classically, it's um, ill will is the... And then for each of those, it's how does it arise? How do you prevent it from the How does it arise? How do you remove it? Once it's arisen, and then how can you prevent it? So that how do you remove it? It's going back to the day on Kaya, the, the central desire was decomposing somebody into their teeth. Yep, that's a... <laughs> it works on ice cream. <laughs> and our cup of cream is gross. And yeah. Yeah. 
Another thing is to know um, that if you're if you walk by the ice cream shop, you're gonna have to work with a lot of sensual desire. And so one whole training here is don't walk by the ice cream shop. <laughs> don't let yourself have contact with the thing you're gonna struggle over. But that's not a long-term solution because you it ends everything. But it's in here is to not, be careful what you have contact with. I just want to say yesterday they served beans and rice for lunch. I was actually grateful because I didn't, yeah. didn't want to... No obsession. <laughs> <laughs> Dysfunctional, nothing to obsess about. Nothing to see for people. Move along. <laughs> just beans and rice. Beans and rice. But the tomato thing was so good. I know. But then the salsa. <laughs> um, can you just say a bit more about sloth and torpor? Because yeah. my sense is that it's deeper than sleepiness. <clears throat> yeah, and so um, sleepiness, there was, a, there was a time I was uh, camping, I was leading outdoor trips, and we'd be so tired at the end of the day. I remember talking to the, uh, the person I was camping with, and we were talking, I was like, oh my God, I think I'm about to fall asleep. <laughs> so I was actually conscious. It wasn't sleepy. I wasn't baffled. I wasn't, like, my mind wasn't under a fog. It's like pretty conscious. And then there was a moment of letting go. So just the fact that we sleep doesn't mean we are hindered. Um, and that your mind is in a very quiet place may not be hindered. It's whether mindfulness is being blocked by low energy or by fog or by some type of um, diminishment of capacity. And so you can't actually meet the present moment because there's a heavily diminished energetic quality versus there being too much energy and therefore you're restless, too little energy. And that they call it sloth and torpor. Um, Torpor is a more tortured mental state so it's where you really are uncomfortable and you're struggling to be awake and you're struggling to make contact with the present. And it's, it's, it, it doesn't always hurt, but the, the torporous mind is one that um, is really laden with fatigue. And the sloth, they say, is more of a body. Like the body is tired, so the body can't sit up and the body itself is slumping or the mind is slumping. So they call it sloth and torpor because it's a body, mental uh, slumping. But it doesn't have to, just that we're sleepy doesn't mean that we're hindered because you actually can feel the kind of the nice relief of being quiet or the mind quieting down or letting go into sleep. And that wouldn't be a, a hindered mind. It's just hindered if it can't really know what's happening. Really great, and I can't just be happy with that. Then I want to add 
Yeah. So if <clears throat> if you think all hindrances boil down to unpleasant Vedana for you, that last one sounds like the hindrance is around pleasant Vedana, unless there's a fear of not getting more or something. But you, so you can be hindered around pleasant Vedana and hindered around unpleasant Vedana. Um, a, a restless mind may not... You can have a neutral restless mind and it just doesn't make good contact because it's just checking this out, 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 checking this out. And it won't, it won't stay put long enough to really be intimate with anything because it just keeps moving around. That stream is hindered in its clarity, hindered in its intimacy. <clears throat> but you might find that there's not an unpleasant or pleasant quality to it. It might be neutral. But often these hindrances do arise in combination. So you can um, be in a restless seeking, uh, pleasure-seeking mind. So it's not like, oh, if I only had that ice cream, I'm really concentrated on the ice cream versus ice cream or no, maybe it's this over here, no, maybe it's that over there. And I get a little of that over there and that over there. So it's, it's moving around a lot in the realm of desire or it might be moving around a lot in the realm of aversion. So um, there may not be uh, a Vedna drive of why you're hindered. But Vedna might be woven in to the experience of being hindered. And um, that other piece about habits of mind, we, you know, when we just talk about habits that we have as people, is it fair to say that they are habits of the way that we manage hindrances? Or because there was that section where he said, um, if you tend to put your attention on So the question is, the way that we're managing our relationships with other people, is that... Yeah, I mean, we have, we have a lot of patterns. And so the first two hindrances, being drawn towards uh, sensual longing or drawn towards ill will, that can become a habit. And you can find someone where they just it's a big groove in their mind, their resentments and fears and frustrations with other people, um, or a lot of longing, and just their mind just can't stop from hoping and longing. It's very hard to do something other. And the, the default setting is towards this longing. So it might become a part of a particular person's groove of how, uh, that they're lost in. Uh, then do fully awakened beings experience the hindrances? Supposedly not. At what point does that cease? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the Buddha described uh, <clears throat> one time the Buddha was walking with Ananda and they were walking between towns along a river 
and they saw a boat that had been um, washed up on shore, probably due to a storm, and had been abandoned. And they're walking by, and due to the aging of the boat and the fact that it hadn't been um, taken care of, it was really in bad shape, the sails, the, the rigging, the boards. And he said to Ananda, if we don't keep reinforcing our habits and patterns, they age and fall apart like this boat. So that's pointing toward the gradual, over time, things just get weaker and they lose their hold over us. And yet there are also classic descriptions and experiences of people who have um, threshold moments where something really is an old habit breaks and it can't actually come back in. And so there, for, there are these epiphany moments where something really is shaken to the point where that old habit um, begins to radically fall apart or doesn't actually arise again. Mm-hmm. And so that tends to happen. Um, I mean, there can be other reasons why it happens, but as people make contact with Nibbana, when they make solid contact with Nibbana, certain things are snapped and broken. Certain habits, unhelpful habits, are snapped and broken. So that's one of the reasons people are so are working so hard to make contact with Nibbana, is to um, snap these underlying habits and patterns. But then striving for that becomes a hindrance. So you tend to actually have the experience when you're patient. Um, Our huntship is when it all snaps and when it's all gone at that point. Okay, so we have the five hindrances, knowing how they arise, knowing how we work with them when they've arisen to reduce them or have them, uh, to abandon them, and then learning over time how we prevent them. The Pali word for essential desire is um, kama chanda. And chanda, there's kama tanha and kama chanda. Tanha is a sort of a, a lock-in craving. So I'm craving ice cream. There's like, oh, I really want it. And like, there's definitely, that's what I want. The word chanda means an aspiration. And chanda can be can anything. You can have angry aspirations. I'm really going to hurt so-and-so. Or you can have um, beautiful aspirations. I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep on practicing until I'm totally free. So chanda is just um, futurizing. Um, and it, any, many things can be futurized. So wholesome things tend not to reject the present towards the future, but you can still have aspirations for the future. Um, and what's called here Kama, it's like in the Kama Sutra, it's the, the pleasant Vedana that comes through the five senses is Kama, K-A-M-A, not Karma, but Kama. So <clears throat> it's wanting pleasure, pleasant Vedana, through the five senses and the way that, um, I guess it could be the six senses, the way that your mind is wandering and seeking, that's Kama Chanda, and then when it seeks and locks on, 
and really starts to crave, that's kamatanha. Um, when there's more of that craving. Kamachanda, there may not be the sense of craving yet, but the mind's sort of adrift, looking for something tasty. But then when it really like feels deficient in the present moment, ensure that there's a future moment, that becomes kama, kama tanha. This may be <laughs> off topic, so I totally understand if you want us to get back on the boat. But you mentioned yesterday, the day before, about karma and nirvana. And my question is, if we're learning in this fourth foundation how to basically become intimate and then break some patterns up with the goal of clear saying and being present and in the moment and learning the truth, where does karma fit in? Where does karma fit into the into, goal? Yeah, into all of it, into our breaking of the patterns. Does it have, I guess what I'm saying is I don't understand it and where. You don't understand karma? No. <laughs> <laughs> karma. Hmm. <laughs> so there are two ways to understand karma. One is mystical karma and one is pragmatic karma. Mystical karma is you did something 10,000 lifetimes ago and there are seeds that are ripening here in this life for um, your benefit and for your um, detraction, your struggle. That's mystical karma. And it's woven through the tradition here that there's mystical karma. Practical karma is you are forging patterns all the time and those patterns steer you towards their results. And so because we're pattern, we are um, taking action all the time, we are going to bear the outcome of whatever we put in motion. Mm -hmm. So if I yell at you, that puts in motion anger, and then I'm probably going to reap the benefit of having been angry. That's, and you can track that type of karma. It's mm -hmm. cause and effect. So my, um, a, a family member I have... Uh, got into a really bad cycle of lying. And they've tried to clean that up, but there's a lingering doubt sometimes about some of the stories being told, if they're true or not. And so there's a karmic outcome of people being a little wary about some of the, and, and the trust is real, has really been eroded. So now they're, that, you could say that's the karmic outcome of a lot of unskillful actions has been that people are struggling with trust. And actually, you need trust all the time. And when you don't have it, it's surprising how difficult a relationship is when trust has been broken that many times. So that's a, that's a karma you can actually trace. Um, there is outcome, and there are outcomes to patterns. And that's something we need to look at. Another reason for wholesome <laughs> Yeah. And that's individual karma. There's also collective karma. There's national karma. So we're reaping the benefit or the, uh, the suffering of things done by generations long ago, but the karmic outcome is still in motion. So again, like uh, slavery was a horrible thing done by nobody in this room. And yet, as a society, we're, you can't just sort of like, okay, that was in the past, so we're good, right? 
It's like, well, actually, that was, a, that was so much suffering put into motion that we're still feeling it. And for that, you might say, you can't just sort of like do a bad thing and then everybody pretend like it didn't happen and hope that you can walk away from it. Like, no, that actually, there's karma. There actually is a karma that you have to, if you hurt somebody's feelings, you actually do have to do some repair work, if you can, skillful repair work, because the karmic ripples um, keep going. So be very careful what you do put in motion, because it all causes rippling. That's karma you can actually track. But there's a very powerful understanding that there's also mystical karma that you should also... and it, lends a sense of urgency to not only the karma you can track, but, you know, not even in private should you do harmful things because that's putting karma in motion that you'll reap the benefit of one way or the other. But there's, sorry, that, that is helpful. And there, but the thing with the urgency, I have to balance with the patience and hasten slowly. You know, it's like they, they both seem to be that makes sense. Hasten slowly. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that used in different circles of, you know, because I think as one awakens, there is an urgency, but you can't force certain things. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. I would rather ask someone who's putting in a lot of effort to find balance by taking a, a slightly more patient approach, mm-hmm. then find someone who's putting in no effort to step it up a little bit. Okay. Um, people who are willing to try and have a sense of urgency and then finding balance within the sense of urgency and finding patience, but they have the fire of urgency, mm-hmm. that, that's a very active mm-hmm. being versus like there's no fire and I actually can't even light a fire. And so... I can't bring someone up to balance if they don't even want, mm-hmm. if they don't have a passion for their process. But someone who's passionate, learning to be patient, that's a little bit more um, accessible. So there's reasons to launch the ride and to build the fire and to really feel enthusiastic and then turning that into something mature and patient. That, that's, very, that's doable. But when people don't even care, getting someone to care when they don't, that's actually a harder thing to do, to bring someone up to balance from passivity or um, being dull. So you do have to find balance, but it's good if that balance actually has an underlying fire that won't go out. For the sake of our minds, our hearts, and our bodies, let's take a uh, 10-minute break and start a new file and go deeper into this fourth foundation of mindfulness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.